Welcome to the land of the golden sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. James Kenny here, and this is episode number 17, entitled John and Henry Shears, James Napper Tandy, and the Irish Revolutions of 1798 and 1803. I hope you like it. The 12th of July, 1798, John and Henry Shears were brought to trial, and their so-called friend, John W. Armstrong, appeared as a witness for the prosecution and swore away their lives. Two days later, the martyr brothers were executed side by side. Wolftone had already been captured at sea on the French ship, the Hoche, which was blown off course with Admiral Bompart aboard. When it was chased and overhauled by the English fleet, and Wolftone was clamped in irons and shipped to Dublin, there he was tried by court-martial and sentenced to hang. It turned out, however, that his trial and conviction were illegal, as martial law had ceased and the ordinary civil tribunals were sitting at the time. The Hoche... The French ship that Wolfe Tone was captured from was later renamed HMS Donegal by the British Royal Navy. It had originally been launched in 1794 as Barra, a Temeraire Class 74 gunship of the line of the French Navy. She was renamed Pegasus in October 1795 and Hoche in December 1797. The British Royal Navy captured her at the Battle of Tory Island on the 12th of October 1798 and recommissioned her as HMS Donegal. At the insistence of the illustrious Irish advocate, orator and patriot John Philpot Curran, an order was obtained against the military authorities to deliver Wolfe Tone over to the civil court. The order was resisted but ultimately the officials of the court were informed that Wolftone was already dead. He had died from a wound to his throat. Popular conviction says it was the work of a murderous hand, while the authorities claim it was suicide. However, many a foul deed was done in the government dungeons in those dark and evil days. By an infamous conspiracy of government, the Patriots of 1798 had sealed with their blood their devotion to Ireland. The vicious repercussions of the barbarous administration were swiftly brought about and dealt out with indiscriminate force against all Irish nationalists. Their wives and families were also hounded and arrested, and rather than face imprisonment, they choose exile in a foreign land. So it came to pass that Pamela de Janelis, wife of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, and their three young children were exiled to Hamburg after his cruel and brutal death. Pamela de Genlis, born Stephanie Caroline Ann Sims, 1773-1831, and known as Pamela, her origins are uncertain, but she was described as an adopted daughter of Felicity de Genlis. It is usually assumed that she was the unacknowledged daughter of Madame de Genelis and Louis-Philippe II, Duke of Orleans. However, 
There is a tradition in Fogo, Newfoundland, that she was the illegitimate daughter of an English naval officer, was taken to England, and ended up in the Genelis household. During the French Revolution, the Genelis family fled to England, and Pamela married Lord Edward Fitzgerald at Tournai on the 27th of December 1792. They settled at his home in Kildare and had three children, Edward Fox, Pamela, afterwards wife of General Sir Guy Campbell, Lucy Louisa, married Captain George F. Lyon, who was given the command of the HMS Hecla under William Edward Parry on his second attempt at the Northwest Passage. The expedition also included Francis Crozier and James Clark Ross, and George Lyon received his promotion to captain in the Royal Navy on his return. Pamela fled to Hamburg, where in 1800 she married Joseph Pitcairn, the American consul to Hamburg. Although she had been greatly beloved and esteemed by the whole Fitzgerald family, her intimacy with them ceased after her second marriage. She remained, to the last, passionately devoted to the memory of her husband, and died in November 1831 in Paris, where her portrait still hangs in the Louvre. During the Franco-Prussian War, her gravestone was damaged. So in 1880, her remains were brought back to England and were buried in the churchyard of St. Nicholas, Thames, Ditton, Surrey, with her daughter Pamela, Lady Guy Campbell. For a short period in the 1820s, Lieutenant Colonel Sir Guy Campbell and his wife Pamela, the daughter of the ill-fated Lord Edward Fitzgerald, lived at Plassey House in Limerick. It is thought that Sir Guy may have been stationed in Limerick Garrison at the time. An infant son of the couple died on the 4th of February 1828 while they were living in Limerick and was buried in Kilmurray Churchyard, a short distance from Plassey House, which incidentally is now an integral part of the University of Limerick. Napper Tandy had escaped from the sea battle which captured Wolftone. Tandy eventually arrived in Hamburg, having eluded the spies and informers on the journey. However, the English had spies everywhere, and they guessed that those sympathetic to the Irish cause would be giving aid to the Irish exiles now in Hamburg. Unknown to Lady Pamela Fitzgerald, her residence was under round-the-clock observation by the paid informer Samuel Turner. Samuel Turner, 1765-1807, to from Newry, was an Irish barrister, a Protestant supporter of the United Irishmen, who turned informer. Turner had escaped to the European continent early in 1797 and spent the next few years in Hamburg, where he maintained the most intimate relations with the Irish patriots. For his services as an informer, Turner was awarded a secret pension of £300 a year by the English government, which was subsequently increased to £500. Sir Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, mentioned him in a letter dated the 5th of December 1807 and praised his loyalty and zeal. Turner was killed on the Isle of Man in a duel with a man named Boyce. Napper Tandy sought out the good lady Pamela and was invited to dine with her. He accepted, but was quite unaware that his every move was observed and followed. 
Having spent a long time in conversation, and it was now into the small hours of the morning, he took his departure to return to his lodgings. The prying eyes of that cunning spy followed his every move and reported back to his spymaster. Very soon the lodgings of Napertandi were raided, and he was taken into custody. He was removed by the English and locked in the hold of a ship on Tuesday the 1st of October 1799. The ship sailed on the 11th of the month, and by a circuitous route he arrived in Dublin, having changed ships at various ports along the way. Napertandi was brought to Kilmainham Jail and securely locked up, to be brought to trial on a charge of high treason on the 9th of November 1799. Among his defence lawyers was John Philpot Curran, and when he was brought before three judges on the 9th of May 1800, one of the trial judges was Lord Kilwarden. At the end of the trial, the jury brought in a not guilty verdict, but the judges refused to release the prisoner and instead introduced new charges and returned him to jail for trial at a later date. Young James Tandy, his married son, was furious at this denial of justice within the law. He fought the authorities by every means to accomplish his father's release under a pardon already outstanding and which had been wrung from the English by the French. It is said that Napoleon vigorously intervened on his behalf, and is even said to have made Tandy's release a condition of signing the Treaty of Amiens. The English authorities refused to release him, threatening instead to have James Tandy, his son, arrested on a trumped charge. They went further, and abused physically his wife and family, and fired shots into the family home terrorising the occupants. James Tandy was brave and made of sterner stuff. He countered and informed the authorities that he had taken steps to have this story of injustice published in the world's newspapers, particularly in America and France, unless they released his father immediately. The threat paid off, and James Tandy won a victory over English brutality. The injustice was overcome by the son's perseverance in the face of tremendous odds. Napper Tandy was immediately released and permitted to sail to France. He arrived there on the 14th of March 1802, a very desperate man, suffering badly from the effects of his brutal treatment and internment. Sadly, he passed away on the 24th of August 1802, aged 63 years. He was buried with full French military honours. His funeral in Bordeaux was attended by the whole army of that district, Bonaparte and other military generals, and a crowd of thousands. In Ireland today he is almost unknown, his name forgotten and seldom mentioned, except when the song The Wearing of the Green is recited or sung. I met with Napper Tandy and he took me by the hand, saying how is dear old Ireland and how does she stand? She is the most distressful country that ever yet was seen, for their hanging men and women, for the wearing of the green. In private correspondence at that time, the Lord Lieutenant and his Chief Secretary were very candid as to the villainy of their conduct. The letters of Castlereagh and Cornwallis abound with the most startling revelations and admissions. Thomas Moore wrote, O Ireland, my country! The hour of thy pride and thy splendour is past, and the chain that was spurned in the moment of power 
hangs heavy around thee at last. James Nabertandi, 1739-1803, was a United Irishman who experienced exile, first in the United States and then in France, for his role in attempting to advance a Republican insurrection in Ireland with French assistance. A Dubliner, a Protestant, and the son of an ironmonger, Tandy was baptised as James Napper Tandy in St. Odin's Church on the 16th of February, 1739. He went to the Quaker boarding school in Ballator, South Kildare, also attended by Edmund Burke, who was eight years older. He then started life as a small tradesman in Dublin's inner city. He was a church warden at St. Odin's in 1765, and also at another local church where he commissioned a new church bell bearing his name, displayed since 1946 on the floor of St. Werburgh's church. Turning to politics, he was elected a member of Dublin Corporation, representing the Guild of Merchants, and was popular for his denunciation of municipal corruption and his proposal of a boycott of English goods in Ireland in retaliation for the restrictions imposed by the government on Irish commerce. In 1795, he fled to the United States, and in February 1798, he went to Paris, where at this time a number of Irish refugees, the most prominent of whom was Wolfe Tone, were assembled, planning a rebellion in Ireland to be supported by a French invasion. Tandy accepted an offer of a corvette from the French government, and sailed from Dunkirk accompanied by a few United Irishmen, a small force of men, and a considerable quantity of arms and ammunition for distribution in Ireland. He arrived at the Isle of Arran Moor, off the coast of County Donegal, on the 16th of September 1798. Tandy took possession of Rutland Island, where he hoisted an Irish flag and issued a proclamation. But learning of the defeat of General Humbert's expedition and that Connacht was now subdued, the futility of the enterprise was soon apparent. Tandy sailed his vessel around the north of Scotland to avoid the British fleet. He safely reached Bergen in Norway, having brought with him a British ship captured along the way. Tandy then made his way with three or four companions to the free port of Hamburg. He was eventually taken prisoner by English agents, and put on board the HMS Xenophon, under Commander George Sayer, and brought back to Ireland as a state prisoner. Thomas Malthus, 1766-1834, the first ever professor of economics, appointed in 1805 to the East India College, published a pamphlet in 1798, called An Essay on the Principle of Population, as it affects the future improvement of society. Malthus said that food production grows by a fixed amount each generation, at a much slower rate than population. Therefore, population will quickly outstrip food supply, and there will soon be too many mouths to feed. The mercantilists believed that large populations helped nations win out over foreign rivals, creating a strong labour force, army and navy, while the utopians believed if people helped each other, poverty and squalor could be abolished. The Marquis de Condorcet, 
a leader of the French Revolution in 1789, said humanity was on a march towards perfection. Civilization had already progressed through nine stages of improvement, and the tenth stage, equality between all people and nations, was just around the corner. However, before that might happen, incomes of workers never grew that much. Peasant farmers often struggled to survive, and a bad harvest or an outbreak of disease could mean starvation and death, and Thomas Malthus was spelling out, with grim clarity, the constraints facing people living in those early societies. Charles Cornwallis was a British general, civil administrator and diplomat. The first Marquis Cornwallis was appointed in June 1798 to serve as both Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and Commander-in-Chief of Ireland, the highest civil and military posts in Ireland. He held these offices until 1801. Cornwallis had specific instructions and authority to deal with the Irish Rebellion of 1798, which had broken out in May of that year. He took steps to ensure that justice was consistently applied to captured rebels, personally reviewing a significant number of court cases. He directed military operations when a French revolutionary force landed at Killala Bay under General Jean Joseph Amable Humbert, 1767-1823, who landed in Killala in August 1798. In the aftermath of the rebellion, the political climate with regard to Ireland became dominated by the idea that the union of the Irish and British kingdoms was necessary to improve conditions in Ireland. Cornwallis favoured union but believed that it would also require Catholic emancipation, that is the granting of basic civil rights to the predominantly Roman Catholic Irish population to create a lasting peace. While Cornwallis was instrumental in achieving the passage of the Act of Union in 1800 by the Irish Parliament, he and Prime Minister William Pitt were unable to convince King George III of the merits of Catholic emancipation. This difference of opinion led to the fall of Pitt's government. Cornwallis also resigned and was replaced in May 1801 by the Earl of Hardwick. Some of the rebel leaders were tried for treason and sentenced by Cornwallis to hang. This prompted a large number of prisoners, who had not yet been tried, to petition Cornwallis for banishment in exchange for their cooperation. Cornwallis agreed, in principle, in order to stem the flow of blood that was still ongoing in the countryside, and out of concern that the rebellion might be renewed if French assistance arrived. The banishments in many cases were not carried out until 1799. In spite of some opposition, Cornwallis ultimately succeeded in having more than 400 rebels banished, primarily to Scotland. According to Lord Castlereagh, Cornwallis's chief secretary, Cornwallis personally reviewed 400 court cases, sentencing 131 to death. 
William Pitt, 1759-1806, was a prominent British Tory statesman of the late 18th century and early 19th century. He became the youngest Prime Minister of Great Britain in 1783 at the age of 24 and the first Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland as of January 1801. He left office in March 1801, but served as Prime Minister again from 1804 until his death in 1806. He was also Chancellor of the Exchequer for all of his time as Prime Minister. He is known as the Younger. To distinguish him from his father, William Pitt, 1st Earl of Chatham, who had previously also served as Prime Minister. Pitt's Prime Ministerial tenure which came during the reign of King George III, was dominated by major political events in Europe, including the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. Pitt, although often referred to as a Tory or New Tory, called himself an independent Whig and was generally opposed to the development of a strict partisan political system. Pitt was regarded as an outstanding administrator who worked for efficiency and reform, bringing in a new generation of outstanding administrators. He increased taxes to pay for the Great War against France and cracked down on radicalism. To engage the threat of Irish support from France, he engineered the Acts of Union in 1800 and tried, but failed, to secure Catholic emancipation as part of the Union. He created the new Toryism, which revived the Tory party and enabled it to stay in power for the next quarter century. Throughout the late 1700s, the popularity of the Society of United Irishmen grew, influenced by the American and French revolutions. This movement demanded independence for Ireland. Pitt had tried and failed to persuade the Dublin Parliament to loosen the anti-Catholic laws, as he said, to keep things quiet in Ireland. Pitt's efforts to soften the anti-Catholic laws failed in the face of determined resistance from the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, who forced Pitt to recall William Fitzwilliam, 4th Earl Fitzwilliam, as Chief Secretary for Ireland in 1795, when the latter had indicated that he would support a bill for Catholic relief. In much of rural Ireland, law and order had broken down, as the economic crisis had further impoverished the already poor Irish peasantry, and a sectarian war, with many atrocities on both sides, had begun in 1793 between Catholic defenders versus Protestant People Day Boys. A section of the People Day Boys who had renamed themselves the Loyal Orange Order in September 1795, were fanatically committed to upholding Protestant supremacy in Ireland at almost any cost. In December 1796, a French invasion of Ireland led by General Lazare Hush, scheduled to coordinate with the rising of the United Irishmen, was only thwarted by bad weather. To crush the United Irishmen, Pitt sent General Lake to Ulster in 1797 to call out Protestant Irish militiamen and organise an intelligence network of spies and informers. In May 1798, 
the long simmering unrest in Ireland exploded into outright rebellion, with the Society of United Irishmen launching a revolt to win independence. Pitt took an extremely repressive approach to the United Irishmen, with the Crown executing about 1,500 United Irishmen after the revolt. The revolt of 1798 destroyed Pitt's fate in the governing competence of the Dublin Parliament, dominated by Protestant ascendancy families. Thinking a less sectarian and more conciliatory approach would have avoided the uprising, Pitt sought an act of union that would make Ireland an official part of the United Kingdom and end what is called the Irish Question. The French expeditions to Ireland in 1796 and 1798 to support the United Irishmen were regarded by Pitt as near misses that might have provided an Irish base for French attacks on Britain, thus making the Irish Question a national security matter. As the Dublin Parliament did not wish to disband, Pitt made generous use of what would now be called pork barrel politics to bribe Irish MPs to vote for the Act of Union in 1800. According to Lurgan ancestry in the late 18th century, County Armagh was the most densely populated rural area in Ireland. Here, the linen industry flourished and competition to rent land became fierce near the market towns with their bleach greens, water-powered wash mills, dye works and beetling mills. Few Catholics were drapers, but many were handloom weavers. Competing with their Protestant neighbours, trade rivalry easily became sectarian rivalry. Rents for the tiny farms of Armagh were the highest in Ireland, and Protestants, living on oatmeal and perhaps bacon once a week, often felt that Catholics, able to survive on potatoes and buttermilk, could unfairly outbid them by paying higher rents. Britannica tells us that the Act of Union in 1801 provided that Ireland, as part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, would have 100 members in the House of Commons, about one-fifth of the body's total representation. The Union of the Churches of England and Ireland, as the established denominations of their respective countries, was also affected. And the preeminent position in Ireland of Protestant Episcopalianism was further secured by the continuation of the British Test Act, which virtually excluded nonconformists, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, from Parliament and from membership in municipal corporations. Not until 1828-29 did the repeal of the Test Act and the concession of Catholic emancipation provide political equality for most purposes. It was also provided that there should be free trade between the two countries and that Irish merchandise would be admitted to British colonies on the same terms as British merchandise. Richard R. Madden, 1798-1886, was an Irish doctor, writer, historian, 
and member of the United Irishmen. He suggests that the Pipo Day boys were composed of both Protestant and Presbyterians, while the defenders originally consisted of Catholics. The Pipo Day boys, so called on account of the nature of their attacks between dusk and dawn on the homes of their Catholic neighbours in search of arms. The title Defenders arose on account of the resistance of Catholics to these aggressions. Lurgan Ancestry goes on to say that drunken affrays in the vicinity of Market Hill between gangs of weavers calling themselves the Napak Fleet, the Bond Fleet and the Bunker Hill Defenders had become openly sectarian by 1786. The combatants regrouped, Protestants becoming People Day Boys and Catholics the Defenders. For the next ten years or more, sectarian warfare raged in, in County Armagh. Better armed, the People Day Boys at first swept all before them. Local landlord, the Earl of Gosford, Arthur Acheson, a member of Parliament for Leyland, or Old Leyland, from 1783 until 1791, who served as governor of County Armagh at the time of Armagh disturbances of 1795, denounced the Protestant extremists as a low set of fellows who with guns and bayonets and other weapons break open the houses of the Roman Catholics and, as I am informed, treat many of them with cruelty. According to John Byrne, a Catholic dyer from Armagh City, some Protestant gentlemen lent arms to Catholics to protect themselves from the depredations of these fanatical madmen, and many poor creatures were obliged to abandon their houses at night and sleep in turf bogs in little huts made of sods. So great was the zeal of our holy crusaders this year. Throughout the 1790s, up to 7,000 Catholics were expelled from their homes in central Ulster. According to Edward Hay, 1761-1826, author of a book on the Irish Rebellion of 1798, and a witness to many of the events of that time, the object of these orangemen appears to have been not to suffer a Catholic to remain within the limits of their sphere of action. They posted on the doors of the Catholics, he says, preemptory notices of departure, specifying the precise time, a week at the farthest, pretty nearly on the following words. To hell or to connect with you, you bloody papists, and if you are not gone by mentioning the day, we will come and destroy yourselves and your properties. We all hate the papists here. They were, he concludes, generally as good as their word. Former Grand Master of the Orange Order, William Blacker, says he deplored these events, but has suggested that no known wrecker or people day boy was ever admitted to the Orange Institution. William Blacker, however, was a participant at the Battle of the Diamond, and thereafter Blacker became one of the original members of the Orange Institution. Mervyn Jess journalist and author, notes that some people day boys might have slipped through the net, but if so, they found themselves in a vastly different organisation. In November 1788, when a Catholic mob near Blackwater Town 
taunted the Benburb volunteers for marching to the tunes of the Protestant Boys and the Boyne Water. It was fired on and five were killed. The following July 1788, more lives were lost when volunteers made a successful assault on defenders assembled on Lisnetlade Fort near Tandragee. For heaven's sake, don't forget the powder and ball with all expedition. The Drumbanagher magistrate John Moore wrote to Lord Charlemont in July 1789, who had no hesitation in giving out arms to Protestant boys that have none, because defenders are now beginning their night depredations and lie in wait behind ditches to murder and destroy every Protestant that appears. The sectarian violence fanned out to the uplands of South Armagh. Here the Catholics had the advantage of numbers and turned on the Protestants with a ferocity not seen for more than a century. In September 1795, defenders assembled near Lock Hall at a crossroads known as the Diamond to face the People Day Boys in battle. When the Protestants were reinforced by a county down contingent called the Bleary Boys, their defenders took their priests' advice and agreed to a truce. Both sides withdrew, but on the 21st of September, a fresh body of defenders arrived from County Tyrone, determined to fight. The People Day Boys, on home ground, quickly reassembled and took position on the brow of a hill overlooking the Diamond. William Blacker, a Trinity College student, home on vacation, spent his time melting lead from the roof of Castle Blacker, making bullets for the People Day Boys. Then he tells us, the Protestants opened fire with cool and steady aim at the swarms of defenders who were in a manner cooped up in the valley and presented an excellent mark for their shots. The affair was a brief duration. From the bodies found afterwards by the reapers in the cornfields, I am inclined to think that not less than thirty lost their lives. The victorious Protestants then marched into Loch Hall, and there, in the house of James Sloan, the Orange Order was founded. Through the efforts and exertions of both Protestant and Presbyterian brethren, who came forward to protest against the continuance of the disabilities under which the Catholic community laboured, throughout ages of injustice and unexampled oppression, brought about some redress between 1794 and 1795 under the influence of the Society of United Irishmen, according to T.A. Jackson in his book Ireland Her Own, political unity was replacing sectarian division in Ulster. This, he says, inspired public-spirited zeal in Catholic areas like County Armagh, where the population had been evenly divided and the scene of sporadic violence between the People Day Boys and Catholic defenders for years, dying down to nothing under the influence of the United Irishmen. Henry Joy McCracken, 1767-1798, a leading member in the north of Ireland of the Society of United Irishmen, while attempting to unite the People Day Boys and Catholic defenders, was placed under surveillance 
and was later arrested in October 1796 and sent to Dublin, being interred first in Newgate Prison and afterwards to Kilmainham Jail. In September 1796, Lord Castlereagh personally presented Samuel Nielsen, Thomas Russell, Charles Teeling and five other prominent United Irishmen with warrants for their arrest and pursued Henry Joy McCracken, who was captured on the 10th of October and lodged with the others in Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. Serious illness, however, permitted his release on bail a little more than a year later, in December 1797. He was, however, later recaptured at Carrickfergus with two companions hoping to embark on a foreign vessel. Court-martialed, he refused clemency in return for naming Robert Sims. His last request of his sister, Mary Ann, was that she convey to his friend, Thomas Russell, who five years later was to suffer the same fate, the simple message that he had done his duty. Henry Joy McCracken was hanged in the corn market Belfast, land his grandfather had donated to the town on the 17th of July, 1798, aged 30 years. Well, Paddy dear, and did you hear the news that's going round? The shamrock is forbid by law to grow on Irish ground. No more St. Patrick's Day will keep his colours can't be seen for there's a cruel law against the wearing of the green I met with Napper Tandy and he took me by the hand he said how is poor old Ireland how does she stand she's the most distressful country that ever yet was seen for their hanging men and women for the wearing of the green For the wearing of the green For the wearing of the green They're hanging men and women For the wearing of the green And if the colour we must wear Is England's cruel red Let it remind us of the blood That Ireland has shed the shamrock from your head and throw it on the sod and never fear it will take root though underfoot is trod and when the law can't stop the blade of grass from growing and when the leaves in summertime the color dare not show and then I'll change the color too I wear in my cobbing but till that day I'll stick to the wearing of the green To the wearing of the green The wearing of the green But till that day, please God I'll stick to the wearing of the green